You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It's not as if I'd walked into this completely unprepared. Even as a child, I was fascinated by death, not in a spiritual sense, but in an aesthetic one. A hamster or a guinea pig would pass away, and after burying the body, I'd dig it back up, over and over, until all that remained was a shoddy pelt. It earned me a certain reputation, especially when I moved on to other people's pets. Igor, they called me. Wicked. Spooky. But I think my interest was actually fairly common, at least among adolescent boys. At that age, death is something that happens only to animals and grandparents, and studying it is like a science project, the good kind that doesn't involve homework. Most kids grow out of it, but the passing of time only heightened my curiosity. As a young man, I saved up my dishwashing money and bought a $75 copy of Medical Legal Investigations of Death, a sort of Bible for forensic pathologists. It shows what you might look like if you bit an extension cord while standing in a shallow pool of water, if you were crushed by a tractor, struck by lightning, strangled with a spiral or non-spiral telephone cord, hit with a claw hammer, burned, shot, drowned, stabbed, or feasted upon by wild or domestic animals. The captions read like really great poem titles, my favorite being Extensive Mildew on the Face of a Recluse. I stared at that picture for hours on end, hoping it might inspire me. But I know nothing about poetry, and the best I came up with was pretty lame. Behold the recluse, looking pensive. Mildew, though, is quite extensive. On his head, both aft and fore, he maybe should have got out more. David Sedaris is the author of Barrel Fever, Holidays on Ice, Naked, Me Talk Pretty One Day, and Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. He's a contributor to National Public Radio's This American Life. His new book is When You Are Engulfed in Flames. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thank you for having me. David, one of the things I think that makes people as writers successful, makes people as businessmen successful, is the ability to tap into something universal and simultaneously something different. Um, so many great writers deal with you know themes of romance, universal romance, uh, ambition, and, and I think where you've really cornered the market on insecurity. Oh, really? I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not such a good judge of my own writing. But somebody had written. Somebody wrote me a letter, and they said, "Oh, I went and saw your show, and you got up there, and you read with such confidence." And and I and I thought, oh, then that's that's false confidence. Like I go on these lecture tours often, and I'll I'll read something out loud, and then go back to the hotel and rewrite it, read it, and rewrite it. Sometimes I want to get up there and say, this next story, I don't really think it's going to work, and uh, the ending is just sort of sketchy, and it's not very funny. But if I say that, then the audience will just think, yeah, that wasn't much of an ending, was I? I only laughed four times. So I think it's better to read something with confidence and then apologize later if you need to. But it's completely false confidence. But this is something I think that, that uh, your, your stories themselves are, are 
are about our insecurities, and you expose those so well that we really feel a kinship with you because all the rest of us who are just quivering masses of jelly inside go, boy, that's just how I feel. <laughs> oh, uh, it always seemed to me that the most sort of embarrassing thing that you can write about is if, if you want to relate to people, then talk about the most embarrassing thing thing that's happened to you because it's happened to everybody. For me, I think embarrassment is, is I think, the cornerstone to the, to the horror genre. I think I'd much rather be sliced and diced by a raving maniac than to look down and, and have somebody say, hey, Rick, there's, you've got a big green thing between your teeth. Boy, I did a reading a couple of years ago, and it was in a bookstore. Like I like a podium because you can hide behind it, but they had nothing. So I was in a bookstore and I was reading out loud and there was there were people like sitting literally sitting at my feet and my fly was all the way down. That's that's a bad dream right there. Cuz sometimes I'll be reading and I'll think is my fly down and then you check it, right? And and if you check it behind a podium, who knows, but if you're just in a bookstore checking it, people see you doing that. But the worst is for them to see you doing it and for you to realize, oh, my God, my fly is all the way down. And there are people I level with it. <laughs> with it. Uh, when, when you uh, start, you know, you've got a notebook right now, I see. Could you talk about um, the joys of eavesdropping and, and of, you know, writing down things that people say? Do you sit in restaurants and, and listen to other people talk? Well, I was, you know, it used to be that you would, let's say, get on a bus and you would wonder about people. You would decide that somebody was married and you would decide that somebody else was a clerk in a store and you would decide that somebody else was an off-duty minister. But now you just wait two minutes and then their phone rings and you find out everything you want to know. But I was listening to this guy on the phone the other day and I, and I thought, what he, he was talking about his work and I tried to write down, but it was so boring, you know, like the stuff that he was saying, because I like the sound of that work talk. I mean, if you wanted to incorporate it in a story, right? I mean, people listening would, would turn off after the first 20 seconds because that's just what you do because there's nothing to hold on to. At no point did he talk about somebody having sex with anybody else. It was about contracts and about getting Peterson in on this and... um. And that's generally what it, that kind of talk is. But I was in St. Louis, and I was taking, they have a new subway system, and there was a woman behind me, and she was calling her boyfriend to tell him about her first day at work. And she said, you know, the person I'm taking over from, she has a black boyfriend too. And I showed her your picture, and she said, he looks big, and I said, big in every way. And... And I listened to her. I pulled out my notebook at that point and was writing down. But she was right behind me. So it was interesting to get up at the end of the ride and turn around and see what she looked like. That happened to me in London, too. This guy was was talking about going in and getting all the information off somebody's computer. And he sounded like a spy. And then when I got off and I turned around, he was just this guy in, like, a T-shirt and um, jeans with, like, a cheap leather jacket on and I thought is he really a spy or is that just his thing is he just having this fake one-way conversation loud one on a bus to make himself seem important 
Um, but it's funny how a notebook makes people more uncomfortable than a camera. Like if I'm walking down the street and I get an ID, I'll pull out my notebook and I'll write something down, and people think that I'm writing down their license plate number or I'm writing down details about their home or something. I was in a grocery store, and I was it was in London, and I think they had something called chump ham. It was just... They have food sometimes. It just makes me laugh. It's just words we don't use here. And I pulled out my notebook, and the store security guard came and said, excuse me, sir, no cameras allowed. And I said, oh, well, I, I, don't, I actually don't have a camera. You know, This is a notebook. Well, I'm just telling you, no cameras. I said, oh, well, I'll remember that for the future, <laughs> you know, but I, I probably won't get a camera then either. I just don't, you know, that's, that's not my thing. Um, and then he, he proceeded to, like, follow me through the store. And and every time I pulled out my notebook, he would he would. It just makes people, it just makes people nervous. You, you awaken our atavistic fear of hall monitors when you uh, take that notebook out. We were all back in the elementary school trying to go to the bathroom, and and there's a hall monitor. But you know, I was in. I was in a hotel last month, and it caught fire. Right. At first, I didn't think anything of it. Then I thought, well, my book is called When You Are Engulfed in Flames. So that's it's really going to be embarrassing if I die in a hotel fire. You know, I'll just be a laughing stock. So I thought, maybe I really should get out of here. And I took the stairs. I told there was an announcement, evacuate, don't use the elevator. So I got on the staircase, and I get to the second floor, and then I hear this woman saying, oh, my God, help me, help me. Fire, help me. And my first thought was, I can save somebody and write about it. But anyway, it turned out she was a writer, too. And so she has some blog or something, and she was talking about this funny little man that she ran into on the stairwell, and how he was so rude he didn't even ask her later if she was all right when he saw her on the street. So it was strange to be that person who's written about. It didn't It didn't offend me in any way. <laughs> um, but But I guess that's like if I were to write about that man who who was talking like a spy um, on the bus. I mean, if I ever wrote about him, what would he think if he were to read it? I guess that's the closest I've ever come is hearing what this woman had to say about running into me on the staircase. So you've never written about anybody and had any blowback from from some of your, you know, shall we call, as you put it, shall we call, call him somebody or somebody? Well... In the New Yorker, when you change somebody's name, you always have to acknowledge that you changed their name. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend who got upset. Um, I didn't really, and he told me I could never write about him. And we were together for six years, and I guess my feeling was like, you know, it was my life too. I mean, I wasn't going to write intimate things about him, but I mean, there were certain things that happened while he was there like, there was a story in The New Yorker recently, and in order for the story to make sense, I had to acknowledge that he and I had broken up. So, and I didn't mention him by name, but I mean, I mean, I think that's pretty harsh, you know, to say, oh, we, that I, that I, to, to have to pretend that he never existed. Um, well, I don't know if that's answering the question or not. Um, I, once I wrote something about a French teacher of mine, and that got back to her. She was really angry, and I learned a big lesson from it because 
What I had written in the story was true. She had threw chalk at people. She uh, stabbed a Korean girl in the eye with a pencil and told her to wake up or go back to Seoul. But we liked her. And I left out the part that we liked her. And it would have been a much more difficult story to write. But I should have done it. And I hurt. That was a situation in which I, I hurt somebody with my laziness. To hurt somebody for other reasons doesn't seem quite as bad, but to hurt someone out of your laziness, that's, that, that stuck with me and, and haunted me. One of the other universal emotions that you tap into, I think, really well is our jealousy of those around us that we... We are, I think a lot of people, and this is kind of somewhat, somewhat of an offshoot of our insecurity, is we'll look at other people and say, boy, whatever it is they're doing, it's, they're probably having more fun at me, and they're doing it better than I am. Um, well, I used to, you know, whenever I got on the subway, I would try to guess who had the most money, right? Who in this subway car has the most money? And I knew well enough to know that it's not always the guy with the Rolex watch, you know, because that could be a fake watch, but it could be, you know, the 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 tramp, you know, who who's uh, loaded and but just doesn't spend spend it on himself. Uh, oh golly! I mean, I suppose there's always that. That's always the fear, isn't it? Is that someone is enjoying themselves more than you are? And 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 as I get older. The sounds of merriment bother me more and more. (laughs) (laughs) I was in a restaurant, and I heard these kids having fun and laughing. And I just, I thought, somebody should go over there and tell them to shut up. And I thought, wait a minute, they're kids, and they're having fun. This is like the best time of their life. Like, that, that scared me. That's when you really worry about becoming a crank, when, when merriment is the most irritating sound you can think of. Um. As a, a writer, when when you're one of the things that you're doing in this book, I think a little more is you're working in the the travel writing genre, and I'm wondering how you do. You think of it? Uh, do you approach it that way? Do you think I'm writing a piece about being in France? That's travel. Mm-hmm. This is travel literature. No, well, I mean, one thing I notice though is that I go on these lecture tours, right? So twice a year, every fall and every spring, I go on a lecture tour. So the month of April, I went to. I don't know how many days are in April, 30 days. Mm-hmm. So I went to 30 cities, right? And then it spilled over into May. So it was a 34-city tour. Now, most of my time is just spent in my room writing. So when I get out, I'm like overstimulated. You know, those two months a year that I'm on tour. And this past year, a book came out. So that was four months in the United States. And then I went to Australia. And then I went to Brazil. And I went to Germany. And... Uh, Italy and, you know, because I live in Europe, I'm close, so people invite me over a lot. Um, so I spend a lot of time traveling, and I worry about that sometimes. I worry that, you know, an, oh, a, another story that takes place on an airplane. But I don't drive. I've never driven a car in my life. So I'm in planes more than I am in a car. And it's a situation in which I'm thrown together with other people. And that, to me, seems to be, I don't know, that's the raw equation right there for a story is to, 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 to be with people you don't know in a new environment. So I, I realized when I was recording the book on tape, I did realize that, that a lot of those stories 
It's like Dateline, Tokyo, Dateline, Paris, Dateline, London. But I think, you know, in the United States, I don't know, if you went from New York to New Jersey to Maryland, people wouldn't think about it that much. But I can go those same distances in Europe, and I'm in a different country. So I think that can be distracting sometimes. People can think, wait a minute, how come he's in the Netherlands? I never get to go to the Netherlands. What's he doing there? But, but it's basically New Jersey. You know, for all the, you live in France, you've spent all this time in Tokyo, you travel all over the world. For all of that, you're, you know, and you're somewhat, I, I think you, we could call you an expatriate American writer, but you're still so quintessentially American. You just cannot leave that behind. I, 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 could you talk about that? Well, I think, you know, there's always, there's something embarrassing about living in France. And, and writing, right? Because then people say, oh, what cafe do you write in? And I would sooner die than sit in a cafe and write. And now, I, technically, I live in London, right? So I have my green card for the United Kingdom, and I can become a citizen um, should I choose to do so. But it was you meet a lot of people living in Europe who say, well, I live here because I'm not really American. You know, I, mean, I was born there, but I'm not really. You know, I never fit in. And I always fit in here. And moving to Europe taught me how American I really am. And every day I'm reminded again and again of how American I am. Like in America, I was on a plane one time and this guy, these strangers, and this guy said, I like your watch. And the other guy said, well, you should. It costs $4,000. I love that. I love the American shortcuts. What does your father do? And that just tells you everything. And you're not allowed to ask questions like that in Europe. You can't talk about money. Um, you know, in France, like the bus drivers go on strike because they want more respect, right? Now, they can already retire, like at age 45 or something, and they get a good salary. And my thinking is, if you want more respect, go to medical school. Like, there's nothing more we can do for you, right? But whereas, whereas my French friends don't look at it that way at all. But that's just an American way to think, right? Um, oh, goodness, uh... Uh, in, golly, um, with just like, oh, okay, like even taking your time, like the taking your time thing, right? Like even if I'm not going anywhere, I'm in a big hurry to get there. So I don't understand that French pokiness, like absolutely gets on my nerves. Um, I think I tend to have more of an American work ethic. Um, that's something that comes out there. Uh, goodness. No, I'm completely... I, I'm an American. I just don't live here. But I'm... My thinking is... Could, could not be more American. You know what? A, a, a good thing, I think, and I notice this more in England than I do in France, is I, I really appreciate in America that that we allow ourselves to reinvent ourselves. And that you can move to another state and you can completely start over. And I really do believe that anything is possible. I really do believe, like, if I can, if I, I always tell people this, if I can write books, anybody can, right? All I ever did was want it. And I don't mean that in, like, that 
I don't know that that uh, the secret. I don't mean it like that. Like you just have to want. You know, you can cure cancer by wishing you didn't have it. I don't. I don't mean that. But American optimism. There's there's a lot to be said for it. You know, when you, when you live in a place where people don't have it. You know, I tend to think like, come on, you can do that. Just get up and do it. You know, you can. But they don't. They don't necessarily think that way. I mean, someone told me that your chances of changing your class are less likely in America than they are in England, right? But, but in America, there's still the hope that you can do it. And I don't know. I mean, that's. Even if it's a false hope, I think it's important to have it. Well, in America, all I have to do is buy a fake Rolex, and all of a sudden you look like the rich guy on the subway train. You know, I did have a fake Rolex for years. <laughs> um, really? Why? Somebody gave me one. Um, we had these French people come to visit us, and they bought a fake Rolex on Canal Street in New York. They said, oh, I bought you one, too. It's not the kind of watch I ever would have wanted, you know, because it had a metal band on it. But then I wore it. Um, I wore it for a couple of years, and then it broke, and then I went. I got. I now I have an Indiglo, you know, one of those Timex ones that mm-hmm. lights up, so you can say, "Man, this movie's as long as I thought it was." One of the things this brings to mind. Uh, one of the things that uh, you write about in here is uh, a, a men's accessory, the Stadium Pal. Uh, what made you decide to go get a Stadium Pal? remember how I first heard about the Stadium Pal. Um, golly, how did I first hear about it? But then my editor at the time, who was at Esquire magazine, showed me this website, right? And it was testimonials. Like one guy wrote in, I went to Mardi Gras and I didn't have to use the bathroom once. Like, <laughs> yippee! And so instead he had urine collecting in a bag, you know, piping hot urine, <laughs> strapped to his calf and he would just empty it into the gutter but but that was so funny to me that that would be a boast so I he ordered me one because we were laughing about it and so he ordered me one and I wore it on my book tour um, and I found that it's really hard to pee and read out loud at the same time it seemed better to wait until for question and answer because then I would say yes does anybody have a question yes and someone would say you know ask their question I would say hmm Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And that's when I would pee, when I had that look on my face. Hmm. But it was very hard to do it uh, while I was reading or checking into a hotel or any, doing anything else. I, I guess I could have done with time. It's probably just like anything else. It takes a little practice. Well, there's now a website called runp.com, which tells you what part of the movie you can leave. It's best to huh. leave during. Um, and, and it tells you what happens during that segment when, when the least is happening. So it'll say, you know, for example, uh, I'll confess I went and saw Terminator Salvation, and, and it said, here's the scene to leave during. It's 40 huh. minutes, 50 minutes into the movie, and when you see this happening, for the next three minutes, they're just going to sit around and jaw about this stuff so you can run out and get back and see all the, the good monster action afterwards. Oh, that's a really good idea. Because sometimes I get up and I drink... You know, like 28 cups of coffee. So, and then every afternoon I go to the movies, right? But if I go, if it's like a three o'clock movie, then I'm going to have to pee at least a couple of times during the movie. So, actually, that would be good for me. Um, 
One of the things that, that I think that you talk about very well is we look at other humans and we think, well, they're, you know, they're just like us. But you describe to us humans who are not just like us, we all hope. And, and you do so in a way, uh, it's really great. I'm, I'm thinking now uh, about um, Mrs. Peacock because Mrs. Peacock is, you take us to the edge of nausea, but not all the way there. It's like you make us nauseous, but we don't actually puke. <laughs> well, I think I would have written her about her differently if I were writing f- about her from an adult point of view. But we were children when she came and stayed with us. So, so that description is through the eyes of a child. So I think it makes her look more grotesque than, you know, she was somebody who worked, let's say, in a restaurant or something, or somebody who drove me from one city to another, or somebody I sat next to on a bus. I, I don't think that I would be quite as, um, I don't think the description would be quite as grotesque. But when you're a child, and this is a stranger in your home, in your mother's bed, in her bra, making you scratch her back, then yeah, you're going to be pretty harsh when it comes to describing her. It's it's certainly <laughs> a, a memorable experience for the reader. Uh, it, could you talk about... Um... But I think actually in the book was different because in The New Yorker, my editor said, you know, this is just a bit too much. And we're going to have to cut it. You know, this is you've gone too far. So, But I reinstated it for the book. I'm glad you did. I, I like that kind of creepy embarrassment horror that you that you specialize in. I, as I say, the Saw movies are, are nothing compared to your books for me. It's just a continual cringe fest from one end to the other. Uh, one of the experiences you write about in this book, and it, it, that I love, and I think is a much more common experience than any than than doesn't get written about it much, is and it's a peculiar social situation. Is the buying drugs from strangers situation. And you talk about uh, going to somebody's house to to buy pot in this book. Could you tell us a little bit about writing about that situation? And that must not have been the only time you ever had to experience such a thing. No. um, It was like 1990, and I went with my brother to buy some pot from these people who lived in a trailer outside of Raleigh. And it's something I'd written about in my diary. And... But it was never enough for a story. You know, it was an incident, but it wasn't a story. And then one day in Normandy, I made coffee using water from a vase of flowers. And I was writing about that in my diary, and I thought, well, in a weird way, this could connect with buying drugs in the trailer. So they connected, and then the two incidents made a story. But that was one thing about, I quit taking drugs like 10 years ago. I quit drinking and taking drugs. And, and the good thing about it, like I have a friend in Paris who's got pot. She usually has pot. And I said to her, it's a really good thing I know you now. Because if I'd known you 12 years ago, I'd be at your house all the time. And I would, and if you didn't offer me pot, I would say, God, that's a beautiful little canister you have on your mantle. What, can I, and, and I would pick it up and I would say, oh, God, you have pot in here. I didn't even realize that. You know, just skeeving is the word. You know, just kind of hinting around and saying, God, I haven't been high. I can't even remember the last time I had high, you know, got high. And this friend of mine is super polite, so I know that she would have, you know, would be, would offer it. I would, I would, I would, I would not have to go overboard for her to give me pop. Um, but I hated myself for being that way. Like, I hated skeeving pot off of people. I mean, I did it, but I, I didn't like myself 
for it. But that's another situation where you're thrown in with a stranger, right? Like when I lived in New York, I got my pot delivered. I would call this number, and I gave my code name, and 10 minutes later, some apple-cheeked college student was at my door with, like, five different grades of pot. That's amazing. (laughs) We don't even get that in Santa Cruz. (laughs) Well, it was really a good... I mean, because I can't tell you how much money I'd wasted before that, like going to Washington Square Park and, you know, getting ripped off by people. So this was... Um, this was fantastic. I mean, you were able to buy pot from someone you trusted, and you were able to do it in a dignified manner. But like the other people, you know, in the, in the past, it had been, oh, I've got a friend, and it was a friend, and I think he can set you up. But they were always sort of interesting stories because, again, you were meeting somebody, and mm, trust was sort of up in the you know, like, you had the trust that they were going to sell you something half decent, and they had the trust that you were going to actually pay them. So they were interesting little brief relationships that you would have with people. Um, and and again, that 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 that's the stuff I think of, or can be the stuff of a story. Now you've given up drinking, marijuana. Cigarettes. I, what's what's left to live for? Well, I ask myself that. <laughs> um, I live for food. Hugh, my boyfriend, says we eat too late. Eight o'clock. Oh no! When he's out of town, I'll eat at midnight or later than that. Oh my! But we eat like ten, ten thirty. Mm. But. I want to eat like closer to the end of the day because that gives me something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. But if I ate early, I mean, if you eat dinner like at 7 o'clock, what do you do after that? I mean, what, I mean, what do you live for? I don't... <laughs> I mean, the drinking... I never wanted to be the person who said, oh, none for me, thank you, and handed the the, the joint to somebody else. I don't like being that person, but... If I was still smoking pot, I just, then my whole life is about getting pot. You know, like when I smoke pot, I smoke pot every single day. Like even if I had like a horrible cold, I still smoked pot. Um, But I never wrote on a pot, you know, and I could never, but I could write, drink. I always wrote while I was drinking. And -hmm. then I quit when I was too drunk to type, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So it was hard to write again without alcohol. But ultimately, I think, now I can write much longer and no no regrets whatsoever that way. Uh, and the smoking, I just quit smoking because all the decent hotels went completely non-smoking. And I go on these lecture tours, and if someone else is paying for your room, and you could be at the Ritz-Carlton, and instead you're at the Amera Suites on the outside of town, that's tragic. See, that said, there's a story waiting at the Amera Suites. There's probably not one at the Ritz-Carlton. But, oh, goodness, the pillows are soft. <laughs> you, you're always on the lookout for a story, apparently. And how do you know when you've nailed one down, uh, when, when you've located you know, one? I mean, to me, it's like a physical, almost sensation. I was in Australia last summer, and I was at the deck of a restaurant with a live kookaburra on my arm, and I was feeding him strips of raw duck meat, and I thought, this feels like a story. 
And it, but it felt like a story, be, and I knew why it felt like a story, and it connected to my childhood, right? So it was just a question of typing it up, right? But by the same token, a few months earlier than that, a few months earlier, I went to a taxidermy shop in London, and I thought this feels like a story, like some wild stuff happened in this taxidermy shop, and I thought this feels like a story. So I've written it, I wrote it up, and I thought mm, I didn't explain. I didn't touch the story part of it. You know, I got all the details and the audience groaned and squirmed and stuff, but I didn't explain why it felt like a story. So I tried it again, and I didn't explain why it felt like a story. So I'm going to try again this summer. But I don't... Well, like with the kookaburra, I knew why it felt like a story. Why? It connected to the word kookaburra, and it connected to this beating I received as a childhood. I mean, as a child, Right. And just the single word kookaburra, because we had learned this song about kookaburras. Sits in an old bush tree. Merry, merry man of the bush is he. Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. Yeah. Merry, merry king of the bush is he. Laugh, kookaburra, laugh, kookaburra, gay, your life must be. Ah, uh, yes, I remember. <laughs> uh, um, there was another story. You're frightening me. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes your life just feels like a story. Yesterday... I heard something that was pretty spectacular, right? I mean, just kind of thing that, not a huge thing, but just kind of story that makes you think, boy, I must be doing something right in my life to have heard this story today. We never knew this was going to happen. There was this woman, she was driving me, she was a driver, a limo driver, and she was driving me from Santa Cruz to San Francisco. And she just mentioned in passing that her cousin had both his arms chewed off by a pig. And it's just not the kind of thing you ever expect to hear. And it makes you think, this is a good day, you know, when you hear a story like that. Um, but I, but it's, but it doesn't make for a story, right? I mean, it's interesting that she told it to me, and I'd like to use it someday. But the story of my trip from Santa Cruz to San Francisco is not a story. I did not change in any way during that trip. It's something I wrote about in my diary, and I often do that. I read things from my diary when I go on tour, but not higgledy-piggledy. I mean, they're little little moments or jokes or little things that, that I think that I know would work out loud, but they're never enough to make a story out of. You're obviously a, a fine writer because there are so many wonderful turns of phrase in your stories. I mean, just really strikingly memorable lines. And I have to ask, do you come up with those on the fly, write them down? Do they come in after hours in your garret burning the midnight uh, oil? Or both, neither? Well, I, I learned every, everything I know about writing. I learned from a fellow named Jim McManus, who I had two teachers at the Art Institute. One was the poet, Susan Wheeler, and the other was Jim McManus. And Susan, was, I did an independent study with her for one semester, and then I had Jim for like two years. And he had told me that, you know, whenever you write a sentence and you think, oh, this is so beautiful, this sentence is so beautiful, then, then you should throw it away because it's precious and it's overworked. And I, and I always thought that to be good advice, you know, that if ever, I'm self, if ever a, a sentence seems self-consciously, like, beautiful. And I mean, not funny, but beautiful, you know, <laughs> like that. I try to get rid of it. Um you know, when you write humor, most people just assume that you dictate into a machine. 
you know, when I go on readings, people will say, oh, I should write a book or, you know, people tell me that I'm funny, so I should do it, you know. They don't, they, don't, they don't assume that you put one word in front of another, that you chose this word over that word. But in a way, I'm not complaining about that because I don't want, I don't want the writing to be distracting. You know what I mean? You know, like sometimes you can read something and you can think, oh, you're just being a show-off. You know, you think that about the writer. And even if it's beautiful, it just seems show-offy at the time. Um... That said, sometimes I try to do that to my, you know, try to do it, and I can't. So I admire people. I actually admire people who can do. Maybe I'm just jealous that I can't do that. But you know how it is. I mean, you're the writer that you are. I mean, you know, I, I you have what you're good at. That I mean, I don't, I don't mean that you can't grow, but I can appreciate. That sort of writing in others, I don't really need to do it myself. Well, you're certainly a, a, a poet of the ugly, the grotesque, <laughs> and the bodily functions of this world. <laughs> and I think one of the things that's nice that that you approach it in a way that we feel kinship. So we say, okay, you know, it's okay that I was passing gas in that interview. Nobody said anything, and and it was all just good. Well, I wrote something. It was just this very silly thing, right? And I've been reading it on this tour. And it's about getting pregnant just so you can drink your own breast milk, right? And I read it, and a woman said, that's so funny because my um, my mother used to put breast milk in our pancake batter, right? And she said it was better for us than regular milk. So I told that story. And then I met a woman who said, I put my own breast milk in coffee. She said, I had a house full of kids. I couldn't get out. It happened, okay? Anyway, people started telling me all these stories. And then a couple of days ago, this woman comes with a plastic bottle. She had left the bookstore. She came back, plastic bottle of breast milk, wants me to sign it to her son. So I do. And then I say, can I smell it? And she lifted the lid. And then she looked at me and she said, we both know where this is going. So I drank breast milk. You did. It just seemed wrong to turn it down. <laughs> How often in life does somebody offer you breast milk? So that's my new. Now I tell people, look, I just drink when they offer me. <laughs> when they offer me alcohol, I say I only drink water, milk, and I mean I only drink water, coffee, and breast milk. That's all. Uh, I think I'd go with the beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of thin and sweet. Sweet. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You do a great job of of mining your own childhood and bringing back the golden moments of, of our own youth. Uh, could you talk about like dredging out these memories and, and connecting them to whatever is happening to you in your life at, the, at that moment right now? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's different for other, you know. Like sometimes I see kids who who are comfortable in their own skin, you know when they're children even, and I just wasn't, and I don't know. And I suppose a lot of that had to do with being gay, even before I had a word for it, right? You don't know that... You just know that there's something... At that time, you would use the word wrong. There's something wrong with you, you know? You're not interested in sports, you know? Um, 
you you meet older people and they say, "So have you got a girlfriend?" You know, like when people say that, they they they'll say it to two year olds. He's got a girlfriend. Ugh, I hated that, and I just hated it when adults would ask me and and when I would say, "Oh yeah, I have a, Becky's my girlfriend." I would hate myself for lying. You know, I I just wasn't. I was just a nervous wreck when I was a child. That said. I really lucked out, you know, um, and I had a, a great family, and my brothers and sisters were my friends, and I felt safe in their company, and I had a really great mom who didn't give me a hard time about, you know, I, like I would make little noises and roll my eyes in my head, and I was a mess, um, but my family pretended that I wasn't, and I don't know what I would have done without them, really. And I guess, you know how that is, that stuff never really leaves you. You can always you can always touch it again when you want to. Like, <clears throat> when my first book came out, I went, you know, the tour went pretty well, and then I went to this bookstore in Los Angeles, and there were four people there, right? And, and I was right next to the cappuccino machine, and it was going off while I was reading, and I thought, I wondered if it was possible to die of embarrassment. So now when I go to the bookstore, I'm, I'm always thinking there are going to be four people there, right? And when there are 400 instead of four, I still think that they could all leave except for four. <laughs> like it's always, like I appreciate the 400 because I can touch the four, right? And I can always touch the shame and the awkwardness of being a child. I can... Uh, and in a lot of ways, I've never gotten that far from it. You know, like if I'm... I was on a plane yesterday, and there were all these guys, like big guy guys, and they all knew each other from somewhere. And it's like, hey, Thorndale, you know, you, uh, I thought you'd be too hungover to make the plane. You know, they all kind of knew each other, and they were all calling out to each other. And I felt so insecure in their presence, you know, I... I mean, I was better dressed than them, and, you know, I'm pretty sure I had more money than all of them combined, but I, I, I felt unworthy in a way. And I thought, still? But I guess it'd just be something that'll just, I mean, stick with me to the end of my life. I, I mean, I guess I could go to a therapist or something, but I always worried that if I went to a therapist, I wouldn't have anything to write about. Like, I don't want to understand I want to, really, I guess I don't. I don't want to, I admire, sometimes you meet someone who's in therapy and I, I listen to them talk and I think, God, that sounds really good. You know, the way that they can understand themselves. But I, I, I kind of like, for, for a writer, though, it seems better to grope, you know, than to, than to understand. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know what people who don't write do. Because when anything bad happens to me, I think I can write about it. You know, I can write about it, and I might have to wait until I think it's funny. And, you know, until I can I can make fun of it, but I, I'll, eventually I can write about it. I found a lump, right? I found a lump at the bottom of my rib cage about a month ago. And I thought, I have cancer. I can write about it. And I went to the doctor. And he said, oh, it's a lipoma. He said, dogs get them. He said, it's just a, a fatty tissue tumor. 
And I said, will it get bigger? And he said, yeah. I said, will it get a lot bigger? He said, no. I said, why? He said, why don't trees touch the sky? <laughs> that was such a good answer, I thought. <laughs> um, but even when I found it, I thought, a book. You know, cancer, I thought, if it's cancer, it's a book. A lipoma, you see. I mean, I thought for the lipoma, it's just full of fat. I looked it up on the computer. So I want to have it removed, and I want to use that fat to fry potatoes. <laughs> and uh, then I thought maybe I can write. Then I'll have a story. As long as you serve it to people to whom you do not tell the, <laughs> <laughs> the cooking material. You know, from collecting these breast milk stories, I met someone the other day, and they went to dinner at someone's house, and their hostess served coffee after dinner. And she served breast milk instead of milk, and she didn't tell them until afterwards. And that's kind of hostile. So I would tell people, actually, these potatoes that you're about to eat, I made the fat that they're fried in. I made that. Um, could you talk... Uh, you uh, talked about uh, the... You, there's a big chunk of this book, which is about quitting smoking. And, and uh, one of the things I love, the cultural observations you make about how the the slow shift of like closing in the fences on smoking. Because I remember, you know, my dad, I used to go with him to the Raleigh store and redeem the coupons. And it was like, you know, kind of a fun family outing to go redeem, redeem the Raleigh coupons. When I was growing up um, in North Carolina, like our class took a field trip to the cigarette factories in Durham. And they gave us free packs to take home to our, to our parents. Um, there was a smoking lounge at my high school. I mean, that makes me sound like a dinosaur, all that stuff. But when you, like now in the news, but turning the cigarettes over, the, over to the Food and Drug Administration, I mean, if I was still smoking, God, I'd be furious. I'd just be furious right now. I'm not one of those people who thinks other people should quit. Like I still let people smoke in my house, and um, the smell doesn't bother me. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I guess, I guess I don't, I guess I just think, what next? Right, so if they can, are they gonna are they gonna turn on obese people next? They're not gonna stop, you know. People who 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 are, they're just gonna find another target after this. I think the big change came when they said, "See that smoker? He's costing you money. That's that guy smoking cigarettes right there. He's gonna get cancer, and the treatment's gonna come out of your pocket." And that's how you got like a lot of people who didn't smoke to all of a sudden care. Like, yeah. How dare you cost me money? Um, well, there's a Republican senator who was making that exact uh, argument uh, like two days ago with regards to this uh, FDA regulation. Well, like I heard someone on the news saying, well, you know, we need to make the warnings bigger. And, and the warnings are so big in, in Europe on cigarettes that you can read them from space, right? It doesn't change anything. Like, you don't think that way when you're a smoker. You don't think when you reach for a cigarette, that you're going to get cancer. I mean, my mom died of cancer. And, and I don't know. There was a, that point of her death, there were four of us in the family who were smoking at the time, like in the car, on you know, smoking. When we left the funeral, we lit cigarettes immediately and, and on our way to the funeral car. I mean, it, it doesn't... You just don't think it's going to happen to you. And you got to die of something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there, some my favorite description of cigarettes was the uh, people. You know, it's you know, 
the suicide note, a, a continual suicide note, one, one cigarette at a time. But life is a continual suicide note, don't you think? I mean, every second we get closer to death. I mean, okay, I understand cigarettes well, are speeding it up a bit, but I don't know. I, I just... I, I just am not that in favor of telling other people what to do. I mean, I'd get rid of cell phones before I get rid of cigarettes. Especially if they can make it so they can talk to people in the plane. Oh, that's going to be awful if they do that. That's really going to be awful. One of the things that I like about your your is your ability to um, uh, talk about Romantic relationships, you're gay, and, and and but the way you talk about your relationship with Hugh is um, at a level where I think everybody can connect with. I think that's really a, a superb talent. Could you talk about talking about relationships? You you get it down, boil it down to the real basics that really matter. I mean, uh, uh, to us. Well, it's interesting. Like when I do these lectures, or when I go on a in a you know on a book tour. Um, I would say maybe 10% of the audience is gay, just like 10% of the population is. So I often think that I'm not gay enough. But I think I, I write about, I mean, the way that I write about Hugh is just about trying to make a life with somebody. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't feel like it's specific to being gay. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel like if, if I were straight, my angle would be any different you know, than, than, than it is. I mean, the way that I approach those stories are the way that I write about them. Um, and it's interesting to me that the audience can see it that way, that the audience can can see it as a story. They, like that, I don't see the audience thinking, wait a minute, that's about two guys. That's really not for me. But that they can relate to it. But, I, but again, I think that's because I don't write about sex. You know, if I did, if I said that I woke up and... Uh, my my butt was sore from the pounding I'd taken the night before. I think that would just change everything. <laughs> but I just... And it's not that I'm hiding it. It's just not my subject. Uh, one of the Pounding. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that I like about your work is you're kind of in a, in a sense uh, a little bit of a serial exaggerator you, you you give us the truth but um you embellish it in a way that makes it really entertaining yet still seems really true to us well i think that's just the way that i'm a storyteller you know like if if two men came in here and broke into this room with guns right i would say the door burst open and 12 men with 12 men with guns like and i don't know why i would feel the need to do that but i don't know it's just the kind of like even verbally it's just the kind of storyteller i am but i think part of that had to do with growing up with a lot of brothers and sisters cuz my dad would leave the kitchen table the second we finished eating but the rest of us would hang out with my mom and all we wanted was her approval and her attention. So we would tell stories, and you learn pretty quickly to shorten your story, to, uh, to, and to move it along, to make it memorable in whatever way that you could. Like, you could not say to my mother, in school, 
today, uh, there's this new guy in school, and his name is Tim. And so the teacher said, why didn't you bring your lunch? And Tim said, I brought my lunch, but then I think somebody, and my mother would be like, oh, my God, you're killing me here, you know? Like, you couldn't, you, you, you couldn't, even when you were, like, in first grade, it was like, come on, get on with it, you know? Like, tell me something I can remember. And, and I'm just, that's the kind of storyteller I am. You know, Hugh, with Hugh, it's completely different. Like, you can, you can bank on what Hugh says, you know? He'd be a fantastic witness in court, you know? And I'd like to think that I might be an entertaining witness in court, um, and that would be good enough for me. Uh, that said, most of your stuff is is pretty short, but the 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 smoking section, uh, the end of this this new book, is a lot longer than um, any other piece of yours I've ever seen or read. And I wonder if you uh, talk about creating that longer piece. What what got you to that long writing place? Uh, I guess in my mind, you know, when I thought I'm going to quit smoking, I thought, well, I can write about it. Right. And then I went to Japan to quit smoking um, just because it, it made sense for any number of reasons to go to Japan. Part of it, you know, I'd read somewhere that if you can, if you're trying to quit smoking, you should move. And if you can't afford to move, you should at least move your sofa. Um, but I could afford to move. And so I thought, go to Japan for three months. Um, so it gave me two things to write. You know, I could write about quitting smoking and I could write about being in another country at the same time. But what I did... Generally, because I go on these lecture tours and because I read out loud a lot, I would never read something that's an hour long because the audience, I, I always think of myself in that audience. And I would rather, if I was sitting in, listening to someone read for an hour, I'd rather hear five things that are short than one long thing. Because if I don't really like the long thing or if my attention wanders and I can't get back into it, then I'm just stuck. So I wrote that long story, but I didn't know... It became prob problematic, like trying to keep tabs on it. So what I did was I went to UCLA uh, for a week and read in a theater every night for a week. And it was a smaller theater, so it was like 400 seats. And it was billed as a work in progress. So I would read from it for an hour every night, which, again, is something I would normally wouldn't do. But I felt like the audience had been warned, and that helped me keep tabs on it. Generally, I have a 10-page attention span, and that's why that's broken up into little sections, because I could handle it in little chunks. But I have such respect for people who can write novels or who can, uh, you know, write, uh, goodness, you know, like Susan Sheehan, you know, spent a, a long time living with a uh, schizophrenic woman named Sylvia Frumpkin, and she wrote a great book called Is There No Place on Earth for Me? I don't know how she did it. You know, I don't know how those people do it. But again, you, you know, you work with what you got. So I have a 10-page attention span, so there I am. I've been speaking with David Sedaris. His new book is When You Are Engulfed in Flames. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.